0: hello welcome to texas true crime i'm your host jessica and i'm so glad that you are here with me i hope everyone out there is good and that your week is going well last week school was canceled for two days because it rained so much we had flooding in our area and my girls everyone's safe everyone was fine we just couldn't some of the roads weren't passable so school was canceled buses couldn't run my girls were thrilled they got two free days off from school Didn't even have to do any online work. So great week for them. And I'm not going to lie. Any teacher that tells you they aren't thrilled to get a free day here and there is totally lying to you. I mean, I got caught up in my laundry, all the exciting things, right? Anyway, this week we are back in Texas in 1997 Amarillo. 19-year-old Brian Deneke was run down by Dustin Camp in his car. The boys were part of different social cliques, the punks and the jocks. The groups had been at odds for quite a while and it eventually erupted in a deadly fight on the night of December 12th. Brian's death alone was a tragedy, but the final verdict that came down after the trial divided the city and did nothing to help the rift that was already there between the two groups of kids. Tensions between the jocks and the punks had been slowly building. The jocks had made it a sport to bully and intimidate the punks inside and outside of school. Many of the punks reported being spit at or having things thrown at them while they were walking down the street as the jocks drove by in their cars. Others had been run off the road while riding their bikes or skateboards. It wasn't uncommon for a jock to yell out their car window as they drove by freak or faggot as they drove by a punk walking down the road so it sounds like it was that cliche we're the jocks we're so cool and we're totally mainstream and we don't accept anybody who looks different now the punks didn't roll over and play dead though they weren't just taking it they would defend themselves but quite frankly by all accounts the jocks were the aggressors in the situation even though when Brian Dennecke's trial came, his def- the defense would paint a completely different picture of Brian Dennecke and his friends. It would come down to the difference between how the two different groups of kids looked and the conservative values of Amarillo in the 1990s. And like I said, in so many ways, it was the typical high school feud of the haves and the have-nots, the popular kids versus the students on the fringes of school society, the students with money and the ones without. But the crazy thing was, is that Dustin Camp and Brian Deneke were both middle-class kids. Their main difference was who they chose to spend their time with and how they dressed. So their backgrounds really weren't that different. It's just that Dustin Camp worked real hard to fit in the ri- fit in with the rich kids and the jocks And Brian just didn't care. He wanted to do his own thing. But it made him a target and it made him stand out. Now, Brian Denneke grew up in one of, like I said, the middle class neighborhoods of Amarillo. His father, Mike, was a stainless steel cookware salesman, and his mother, Betty, managed a photo processing lab. Now, for all of you youngsters out there who have only ever had digital cameras and may not know what a photo processing lab is, back in the 90s before digital cameras, you would take your pictures and then drop your film off to have it developed. And then you would go back to pick your pictures up when they were ready. Sometimes if you were lucky and in your town, they had a one hour processing place. So you had your pictures back within an hour. Some places you weren't so lucky. You had to wait days, sometimes even a week before you got your pictures back to see what they looked like. Needless to say, if it was terrible, there were a lot of pictures just thrown in the trash. You didn't get a preview like we do today. We're lucky. And there was no Photoshopping involved. If you had a zit, you had a zit. Anyway, Brian was friendly and outgoing, but he was also outspoken and strong-willed. And he wasn't interested in his schoolwork. It just wasn't for him. He wasn't an athlete either. And an Amarillo, that made you an outcast. You know, some stereotypes are here for a reason. And that whole Texas football is king thing is pretty true in a lot of places. And Amarillo's no exception. So if you weren't one of those people, whether you were on the field playing, or you were on the sidelines cheering, or you were even in the crowd doing the rah, rah, rah thing, you were an outcast. And Brian wasn't interested in all that. So when he was 13 years old, Brian started riding a skateboard around his neighborhood. He soon met other skaters that he enjoyed hanging out with. Now, some of those guys introduced him to the punk scene and he and his brother, Jason, who later became a Bomb City Skin, which is another offshoot of the punk scene, but they just had a more relegated group. Brian didn't really belong to a specific group, but his brother did. Uh, they would go to the local punk shows and listen to the music. Brian was drawn to the hard-edged rebelliousness of the music and the individualism that the punk scene stood for. It really did speak to him. So it wasn't long after that, while Brian was in middle school, that he started his full-fledged transformation from Boy Scout skateboarding punk with a green mohawk and i can only imagine i know in my junior high if some kid had started showing up with a green mohawk riding a skateboard around no, we have people who rode skateboards don't get me wrong but with a green mohawk first of all they wouldn't have been allowed to even come to school with a green mohawk so i'm kind of surprised that in conservative amarillo that happened but they would have gotten made fun of they would have gotten taunted All kinds of stuff would happen so i can't say growing up where i went to school would have been any more open and inclusive that's for sure so he was even though the freedom of the lifestyle spoke to him it wasn't gonna fly in his conservative hometown he had a real strong opinion that it shouldn't matter how he had his hair or how he dressed said mike denikey brian's father Even though he was right in a theoretical sense, it didn't matter. We knew that society would judge him and that there would be consequences. So Mike Denneke and his wife, they knew this, but Mike went on to say that eventually they decided to accept Brian's lifestyle because they were worried that they would lose their son. And he said, you get to the point where you can keep battling with your children, but you realize you're not going to change them. I mean, they had so many fights that at one point the fight became so severe and out of hand, they tried to cut his mohawk off. Brian's parents were straight laced. They were not excited about this change of lifestyle. They were not interested in this change of lifestyle. You know, they were regular church goers. They were doing your regular middle-class thing. They both had good nine to five jobs. You know, the whole two kids, two car garage. They were your typical middle-class American family and for their son to be choosing this kind of quote unquote alternative lifestyle, remember it's the nineties, we weren't as open-minded. It wasn't cool for them, but at the same time, they didn't, like Mike Dinicky said, they love their child and they'd rather him be in their life than keep battling and fighting with him because at some point he might just disappear from their lives and they would rather him be in it than condemn him, which, you know, I feel like that's pretty smart. Well, pretty soon Brian became one of the most recognizable punks in Amarillo. He covered himself in tattoos and piercings. He sported brightly colored hair and studded dog collars, wearing t-shirts with sayings like destroy everything. But this also made him a target. Like I said, Brian didn't own a car. He walked or rode a skateboard to school, and after several beatings, one that was severe enough to require stitches to his head, his friends gave him the nickname of fist magnet because of how many times he had been hit. It was also very common for people to yell at him or call him names. Now, sometimes Brian would try to explain to whoever it was that was yelling at him and calling him names why he looked the way he did why he chose the punk lifestyle why it was important to him he liked the artisticness of it he liked the freedom of being able to express himself and sometimes according to his girlfriend jennifer people would actually stop and listen to what he had to say other times they wouldn't but you know sometimes he wanted to try to explain himself other times when someone was being particularly obnoxious he'd just smile at them and say oh you're such a big man So overall, it sounds like Brian wasn't looking for a fight, but unfortunately, where he lived, people like to dish it. But he also wasn't just going to let people beat the tar out of him. He started wearing something called a smiley for protection. Now what that is, it's a chain that was hooked to his belt loop with a padlock attached at the end of that chain. So think about it. If someone's beating on you or trying to get at you and you hit, you swing that and hit somebody with it, that's going to cause some major damage. And I'm not going to lie. I can't exactly say that I blame him. I mean, after all, at one point he ended up with stitches for being beaten so severely. Well, finally in the 10th grade, Brian got tired of always being beat up and taunted. When a group of students drove by in a pickup truck and splashed water from a puddle on him as he walked to lunch, he lost it. He lost his temper and he picked up a rock and he threw it at the truck. Brian was put on juvenile probation and not long after that he dropped out of Amarillo High School. When he was 17, he permanently moved out of his parents house and decided to see the rest of the United States. He and his girlfriend hitchhiked up and down the east coast doing odd jobs for money to get by. Now they eventually got tired of living hand to mouth and made their way back to Amarillo and Brian went to work for the eccentric millionaire Stanley Marsh III in 1997. Now, I am not saying that wrong. He's not Stanley Marsh III. He went by, until he died, Stanley Marsh III. Stanley Marsh III was the creator of the Dynamite Museum. Stanley Marsh believed that art should be accessible to all people. And that it didn't have to be stuffy. He wanted everyone to enjoy art. Um, So he hired Brian and other artistic young people to help him not only create art for his local art installations, but to install it all around Amarillo. So the art installations were fake road signs that had all kinds of sayings and paintings on them. Some of the signs said things like the road does not end or art is what you can get away with. And there's a really cool dynamite museum Facebook page where you can see pictures of a bunch of these road signs, but I'll post some on Instagram and Facebook also. So you can take a look at them. They're really cool. Uh, I personally, if someone, if Brian had come to my yard, I would have been like, yeah, put one up. So, um, Brian and the crew rode around Amarillo in one of two vehicles, a pink Cadillac or a hearse painted like a yellow submarine that blared loud music and they had a pig named Cinderella riding around with them. So a total crazy carnival, like atmosphere, right? Well, besides creating, and installing the signs, Brian's job was also to talk with homeowners and convince them to allow the dynamite museum to put a piece of art in their yard. Stanley Marsh three said that even though he looked bizarre, Brian could walk toward people with his hand out, grinning, and they would like him before he got to their front door. So it's obvious that Brian was charismatic. He was charming. And that's another thing Stanley Marsh said. Because of his charm, it worked on even the most resistant of adults. And that's the thing. By all accounts, Brian was a nice guy. He was caring. He was charismatic. And people liked him if they took the time to get to know him. Stanley Marsh started calling him sunshine because of his boisterous, optimistic, fun personality and it stuck. So here's the thing. Yeah. Was he dressed like a punk rocker? Sure. With his green hair and his mohawk and his spiked dog collar and tattoos and piercings and leather jackets and all the things. Yes. But does he sound menacing? No, the guy had a nickname of sunshine because of his sunny personality. So this is not somebody who is a mean, aggressive, hateful person. Brian became the de facto leader in the punk scene in Amarillo. He brought in bands to play shows in town, and he even turned his eighth street house into a refuge for kids who had nowhere else to go. He would provide them with food and shelter. And he had a dream to create a place for all ages to enjoy bands, poetry, art, and theater. He wanted to give people a place to do something constructive with their time and a safe place to be so they weren't harassed in the street. He had saved a large portion of the money he made working for Stanley Marsh III at the Dynamite Museum and was coming close to having enough money to make that dream a reality. It's something that he really wanted. Another cool thing about Dynamite Museum, I'm just throwing that in there. If you're familiar with Amarillo, they have the Cadillac Ranch. And it's all these Cadillacs lined up in a row, half buried, like face down, halfway buried in the dirt, just in a row. And you can stop and look at them. They're kind of cool to look at. So the Dynamite Museum was also part of that. And Brian helped Stanley Marsh create that too. He was artistic. He was in a band. That was the kind of things that he was interested in. Which, like I said, didn't really fit the typical stereotype for a dude in conservative Amarillo. Six days before Brian was killed, there had been a fight between a group of punks and jocks outside of a coffee shop on Western Street. A group of jocks surrounded a group of punks while they sat at the table and ate. The manager told them that they all had to leave the restaurant and the fight spilled out into the parking lot. So basically, this group of punks were sitting at the table trying to eat. The jocks came by, harassed them, turned into a fight. They all went into the parking lot. Well, Dustin Camp was one of the jocks involved in the argument that quickly got out of hand. Dustin's windshield ended up being broken. Now, Dustin denies this, but it has been reported that Dustin used his car that night too, to intimidate the punks. He took swipes at them with his Cadillac and then drove away. But this time that night, he did not come back. So Brian already has a history of trying to use his car to intimidate other people, but on the night of December 12, 1997, things were very different. Talk had been brewing during the week that the punks and jocks were going to square off again to finish what had been started the week before. When Dustin Camp and his two friends Rob Mansfield and Elise Thompson turned onto Western Street in his Cadillac, they could see the coffee shop parking lot where the fight had occurred the week before. Reports vary from that night, but by all accounts, the jocks outnumbered the punks by more than half. A large group of boys in letterman's jackets stood out in the parking lot with several bystanders hanging around to see what was going to happen. Now, Elise Thompson said that there was always big talk. People were always saying, Ooh, the punks against the jocks. They're going to fight tonight. But she said, usually some words were exchanged, maybe a punch or two. And then everyone would scatter. And she assumed that this was going to be just like. Every other time Now there was a group of punks with bats and chains walking towards the group and they were challenging the jocks to a fight. It didn't take long though for the fight to begin. And it was brutal. The pent-up rage that had been simmering between the two groups was on full display that night and the punks were done. Dustin camp drove towards the fighting teenagers and wove his car between the fighting bodies on the street. Dustin saw one of the jocks being beaten by several punks, and that was when he snapped, said Elise Thompson. Elise said that Dustin steered his car towards the crowd. He drove towards one punk and knocked him off his feet onto the hood of his car. So here's the thing. Dustin's already hit somebody, and that didn't snap him out of his rage. In fact, it seems like it fueled it. But if you're already so pent up that you hit a person and they roll off the hood of your car and you don't stop, something's wrong. Elise said that she could see the look of surprise on the boy's face as he rolled off the hood of Dustin Camp's Cadillac. Rob's, Rob Mansfield yelled at Dustin Camp to leave. He told him to get out of there as the punks beat on the car with bats in their fists. But Dustin drove towards the exit of the parking lot. But instead of leaving, he whipped the car around and headed back towards the people fighting in the parking lot. As he drove towards the group, he accelerated his car and jumped the median in the parking lot. So he had no intention of leaving or doing anything to help stop things. He accelerated his Cadillac and headed towards the people. 19 year old Brian Dinicky was hitting another person and Dustin Camp drove his car straight towards him. Brian turned to face the car and was caught in the bright lights of the Cadillac's headlights. There was a loud thud and Brian rolled onto the hood of the car as he was struck by Dustin Camp. He then rolled off the hood of the car and Elise would later testify that she felt the car bump two different times as Brian was crushed underneath the car. She said she prayed that it was the median and not Brian's body she felt being run over. Instead of being horrified by what had just happened, Dustin shouted merrily, I'm a ninja in my caddy. I bet he liked that one. Dustin Camp did not stop the car. He did not get out to see if he had hurt Brian Denikey, let alone kill him. He didn't even turn around to look back. He just kept on driving out of the parking lot while Brian Denneke lay on the ground dying. Elise Thompson would tell the police that she looked out the back window of the car and saw Brian lying on the ground in a pool of blood. Again, like I said, you hit a person and that doesn't cause you to stop and take a moment to go, oh my God, what the hell have I done? Really? And then you shout merrily, I'm a ninja in my caddy? Bet he liked that one. I mean, come on. Brian's girlfriend told Texas monthly that after Brian was hit, a cheer went up from the jocks. I mean, this was a volatile, horrible situation. I can't imagine someone getting run over and people cheering. It's just, it's like a scene from a horrible movie. Brian's friends ran to check on him, and he was trying to talk to them, but he couldn't. Blood was coming out of his mouth. It was coming from everywhere. Brian's brother Jason picked him up and held him in his lap while Brian died. The Cadillac crushed Brian's chest, skull, and pelvis, and his collarbone was ripped from his shoulder when the car ran over him. Dustin Camp hopped on the interstate and just drove on home. As he drove, he told his friends that he would take the blame for everything. They didn't even have to admit that they were in the car when everything went down. But we were in the car, said Elise Thompson. Dustin then lost his composure and began crying and beating his head against the steering wheel. He dropped his friends off at their homes. He went to his house and told his parents what happened. Now, here's where it gets worse, y'all. His parents didn't even expect him to, like, worry about a boy lying in the street. They told him just to go to bed and they'd deal with it in the morning. Are you kidding me? So here's their moral standpoint on things. Oh, well, go to bed. You ran over a guy. You left him lying in the road, but go to bed. We'll deal with it tomorrow. And that's exactly what Dustin Camp did. He got in his bed and he went to sleep. It's disgusting. Robin Elise, on the other hand, though, were beside themselves. And they told their parents what happened as soon as they got home both families got in their cars and drove to the police station that night to report the fight and the death of brian the next morning the police arrived at the camp home at 6 a.m the hood of brian's car was damaged and there was blood splattered all underneath the car police also found an empty bottle of crown royal and a partial 18 pack of beer inside the car dustin camp was arrested and charged with murder now at first Dustin tried to say it was an accident. He said it was icy and the car slid and he accidentally ran over Brian. At one point he tried to say that Elise and Rob weren't in the car, but Elise and Rob had already come to the police station to report what happened. So he lied multiple times to the police. It was, and he never once acted like he was remorseful about hitting and killing Brian Dennecke. So, it's just, it's just disgusting. There's nothing else to say. Sergeant Rudy Montano said it was no accident whatsoever. He said Dustin never hit his brakes or tried to swerve away from Brian. He hit him straight on. Rob Mansfield was so traumatized by the event that he blocked the whole night out and couldn't remember details when it came time for the trial. Elise Thompson ended up being the prosecution's star witness because she was at least able to recall the night's events. Elise said that after everything happened, she sunk into a deep depression. She couldn't get out of bed. She said that she didn't feel like she should be alive. She suffered from terrible survivor's guilt. She said that she ran the moments over and over again in her mind, trying to figure out what she could have done to maybe stop what had happened. She said people tried to comfort her and tell her that it wasn't her fault, that she couldn't do anything, but she said they didn't understand. They didn't have that image in their mind over and over of what happened to Brian. In May at the Tuscosa High School graduation ceremony, Elise Thompson gave a passionate valedictorian speech. She told the crowd that a boy had lost his life in December. She said the fatal fight was fought because two groups of people wore different types of clothes. She urged the crowd to rethink their own prejudices and stereotypes toward one another. Brian Dennecke's trial began in August at the Potter County Courts building in downtown Amarillo. Behind the defense table sat Mike and Debbie Camp with their pastor from the First Presbyterian Church and several other relatives. Many young men sat in the rows behind them dressed in button-down shirts and khakis. So there they sat... The picture of upper middle class perfectionism, exactly what you would look for from nice people. And of course you can't see me in the air quotes, but nice people, you know what I mean? On the other side of the aisle behind the prosecutor sat Mike and Betty Dinicky, silently holding hands and three rows of punks sitting behind them. Even though they had taken off their dog collars, chains, and piercings, they still looked completely out of place in the courtroom. The assistant district attorney, John Coyle opened by telling the jury that this was not an accident that, and it was not justified that Dustin camp intentionally and knowingly murdered Brian Dennecke by running over him in his car. He presented plenty of evidence to the jury against Dustin Camp. He had never hit his brakes. He never tried to steer away from Brian. He fled the scene. He lied to police. And there had been a similar incident the weekend before where luckily no one died, but he had still tried to use his car as a weapon that night, too. And you know, here's the thing about Dustin Camp he was really an outsider to his group. Yes, he was accepted by his group, but he had to work real hard to be in his group. All his other friends were rich and they didn't have jobs. They were living the dream, so to speak. Dustin, on the other hand, he lived in the prestigious neighborhood where all the other, where all the other kids lived, but he only lived one block away from Brian Denikey's neighborhood. They lived, his family were working middle class. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but he worked just as hard to fit in with the jocks as Brian denneke worked to not fit in. It was really important to Dustin Camp. He and he worked part-time for his father. So it was his image was important to him. He also was. Worked super hard to even be able to be on the football team. He lifted weights. He watched what he was eating. It was very important to him. But he was a junior in high school and still on JV. So, which there's nothing wrong with that. But what it means is, is that he was working hard for everything he had. But he was working to stay with the in-crowd. As where Brian was like, forget it. I'm not interested in that kind of life. So they really had more in common than probably either boy ever even knew. Jason Dennicese took the stand and quietly told the court how his brother had died in his arms, while many in the courtroom wept. John Coyle also proved that it wasn't Brian who hit Dustin's car that night. It was another guy in the crowd, but it wasn't enough. Dustin Camp's defense attorney Warren Clark assassinated the punks and brian denikey's character he called them things like thugs and goons he painted a picture of a violent group of kids who lived on the fringes of society and were always in trouble with the law which was not true if you go on youtube and you search 2020 brian denikey you can watch an interview with now dustin camp does not appear Brian's family appears, Brian's friends, Elise Thompson speaks, and then Dustin Camp's awful attorney. Watch him. I don't know how the man sleeps at night. He is so hateful. His whole attitude, it's just, I've never seen someone be so hateful. Warren Clark then brought in several witnesses to talk about Brian's bad behavior. He even held up the clothing he was wearing the night he died. He said combat boots, camouflage pants, and a leather jacket was just proof that what he chose to wear that night meant that he was going out to cause harm. That he wanted to be violent. I don't know about y'all, but last time I checked, camo pants, leather jacket, combat boots don't necessarily mean you're going to do anything wrong. I actually own all three of those items of clothing, um, don't don't necessarily wear them together, but they don't make me a murderer and they don't make me a violent person. He called Brian a mean drunk. He said that his death was a result of the way he chose to live his life and that he was not surprised that Brian died so violently and so young. He told the court that Dustin ran over Brian in defense of his friends and to save their lives. And then he followed up by saying that given the chance again, Dustin would do it all over again. It was relentless. Can you imagine? The message he delivered was a character assassination against anyone who chose to be different and not live a typical middle-class lifestyle. Basically, if you didn't fall into the mold and do what was expected of you, then you obviously weren't a good person. It wasn't okay if you looked a little different. It wasn't okay if you didn't follow the crowd. That must make you a horrible, violent criminal. John Coyle gave a passionate speech to the jury in closing, telling them that it was important to send a message to the young people in the community that it didn't matter how you looked or what your lifestyle was. Your actions had consequences and everyone must face the consequences of their actions and the choices that they make. He told the jury that he did not expect them to enjoy sending Dustin Camp to prison, but there were times that we all had to do hard things. The jury deliberated for several hours. They convicted Dustin Camp of manslaughter instead of murder. Basically, What that means is that they thought that dustin had been reckless not intentional everyone in the courtroom was shocked now manslaughter carries a two to 20 year sentence but because dustin didn't have a criminal record it was possible for the jury to just give him probation when it was time for sentencing dustin camp was given 10 years probation and a $10,000 fine that would later be dropped. It was a slap in the face to Brian's friends and family. Not only was he not convicted of murder, but then he didn't serve any jail time. Probation for running Brian down in the street and then leaving him there. Didn't even have a shred of humanity to turn around and check on him to find out what he had actually done to another human being. The verdict and the sentence tore the community apart. People were outraged. They called, wrote, and sent emails to local TV stations and newspapers st- stating their anger. Just, it, it was an influx. It was unheard of. If. All you get for murdering someone with your car is 10 years probation with a felony free record, wrote one incense television viewer in an email that was read on the air. Then I can only ask Mr. Camp not to let me see him walking around. So that's the way people felt. They couldn't believe that this young man had murdered another one in cold blood and he got a slap on the wrist. That was it. It became so bad that the judge sealed the names of the jurors because he was worried what people might do to them. He thought they might retaliate against the jurors. Most people believed if the roles had been reversed and a punk had murdered a jock, that that kid would be in jail. Discouraged by the verdict and the treatment that they had received for so long in Amarillo, a lot of the punks moved out of town. They appreciated the community's outrage but they were a little jaded. Where had all these teachers, adults, police officers, and other communi- community members been when they were being harassed, beaten up, run off the road. Where had all that care been before? It was a little too late for some of them. The eighth street house where Brian lived hosted bands and provided shelter for many young people with nowhere to go burned down a few years later after he passed away. Dustin Camp was unable to keep himself out of trouble though. So I guess in a way, you know, what goes around comes around. He ended up spending six years in prison for parole violations. So, you know, he got this awesome chance to turn his life around and make things better, but he couldn't manage to follow the rules. So, you know, you get what you deserve. Although six years still isn't enough time for what Dustin Camp did. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know thoughts, um, what you think about this. If you happen to watch the 2020 episode, tell me what you think about Dustin Camp's attorney. It's I'm just floored by anyone who can be that hateful. I don't know, it just got all over me, to be quite honest. Um, I had a listener reach out today and bring up that all of my episodes on Spotify were showing the oldest ones and you had to scroll all the way down to the bottom to see the newest ones. I am gonna see if I can change that on my side of things, but I do know if you want to see the newest ones first, you can change that in your settings on the app for you anyway just thought i'd put that out there because mine are set up to show the oldest ones not the newest ones so anyway i'll see if i can change that on my end but just thought i'd put that out there um like i said thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed if you like what you're hearing please tell a friend put a out a five star review and subscribe so that that way you do get the newest episodes every time. If you uh, would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime, or you can send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. I will see you guys next week. Bye.